Shit Platypus Says, episode 31. Welcome to Shit Platypus Says. I am one of your hosts, Pamela Nogales. In this latest episode of the cancel culture saga, social media companies have taken it into their own hands to censor content. Trump's tweets, Zero Books videos, and Brad Trammell's memes have all been subject to the policing eye of so-called fact-checkers. In the first part of this episode, Lori joins me to discuss the new wave of censorship under our Silicon Valley dystopia and the realignment of liberals in the Trump era. In the second part, our European correspondent Andreas joined Sophia and I to discuss the responses by the anti-imperialist left to the recent terror attacks in France and Austria, featuring Austria's Die Funke and Marx 21 in Germany. Then Andreas interviews Michael Fischer, an Austrian anti-fascist and recent contributor to the anti-German publication Bahamas. Fischer presents his critique of political Islam and his thoughts on the anti-imperialist left today. Finally, Frankfurt Platypus member Jan Schroeder joins us to reflect on the trajectory of the anti-German left, from its origins, through its opposition to the Balkan Wars and support for American intervention in the Gulf, to their present iteration as defenders of class politics. That's it. Happy New Year. Happy 2021. Bye 2020. We never loved you. Hey, Pam. Hey. I called you because there's been a new development in uh, the long march down cancel culture uh, into now Instagram canceling people themselves. Like, we don't need people to uh, cancel each other on Instagram and Twitter. The platforms are canceling people, and the, the recent victim has been the artist Brad Trammell, who we oh, yeah. have covered, and they've been shadow banned. So for those of you guys that don't know what shadow banning is, you know, it's what happened to Brad. Like you don't pop up on people's feeds. Your stuff is not. Hashtags that like you put on your posts, when someone clicks on it, your your posts don't pop up. They drop your audience by like 75% or something. Yeah. yeah. Brad got a major banner covering his meme about biden yeah um and on insta it, it kind of it kind of really shocked me at first i was like what the fuck and then you know then you read it, i was like but why okay and you read the yeah. meme i was like wait what's what's the factual incorrect thing here the meme is bill clinton and joe biden looking at each other and they are embracing biden has the world's most ridiculous mullet yeah biden has Biden has this like rat nest at the bottom of his hair and um, <laughs> at the text says find someone that looks at you the way Biden looked at Clinton after Clinton signed Biden's crime bill into law bringing mass incarceration to black Americans and they're both smiling right and and the really surprising thing was that you're like who who fact checked this and Instagram actually tells you like USA Today uh, yeah. Let's talk about USA Today and Instagram, like pairing up to police social media for the Democratic Party. Yeah, yeah. All these like Silicon Valley companies are behind the Democrats and... And the Democrats are behind them. 
What I find really striking, you know, and just just to be clear, the little notice that comes up is fact check. 1994 crime bill did not bring mass incarcerations. Black Americans. You're like, what? It's like, what the fuck? It's very bizarre. Don't you remember back in like 2016, there is this article by Michelle Alexander who wrote The New Jim Crow uh, in The Nation titled Why Hillary Clinton Doesn't Deserve the Black Vote. All of these liberals, right? Like anyone that was trying to be like a critical liberal was like sharing this article. And it's on The Nation, like basic liberal, basic bitch liberalism. And... And it was about how the 1994 crime bill led to mass incarceration of black Americans. And it was, you know, widely spread, shared, agreed with. And now all of a sudden it's false. You know, like Glenn Greenwald wrote an article where he talks about his criticism of Biden was made by Kamala Harris and Cory Booker. It's not even during their primaries. Yeah. 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 Totally. Yeah, no, it's like the the short term amnesia is kind of ridiculous in that sense, right? And it is really like it is really surreal now. Like it's just like, okay, this kind of like intervention is yeah. I'm like, where what this is the Gestapo now? Like it just has this. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> But, you know, it shows a certain kind of, you know, read in a different light, a sort of paranoia Uh, and like weakness. Right. Like if we don't toe the line, like people will just get confused. Right. Like we got to shut down all kinds of challenges. It's it's a bit desperate. I don't know. It just feels like extra. It is a distrust of the masses. It's an infantilization of like, what is it that you can like learn to do on your own? Yeah. Right. What is it that you can you can you can assess like rationally consider? Yeah. Alone. Instead, it's all just being like marked like an adult advisory because you're going to watch some. Platypus uh, put the Marxism in the Age of Trump panel that we did on the 5th of December. And YouTube uh, put this little banner underneath it that was like, U.S. elections. Really? The AP has called the presidential race for Joe Biden. See more here. <laughs> right. Just, just, just using the word Trump. It's like... Mm. It's like robust safeguards help ensure the integrity of elections and results. Click here to learn more. <laughs> Like our panel came with this warning label. <laughs> it is true. Like if the 2016 election didn't like show you like how like wretched journalism had become, right? And then what we've seen is like you know the original like optimism of the internet and like free speech of Twitter and all these things. It's like mm, that didn't last very long. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, again, like I feel like this has been. You know, we we often talk about um, Adam Curtis, like Curtis has tracked, you know, the integration of Silicon Valley utopia into the technocratic, like neoliberal machinery. Uh, And this has been going on for a while. Right. And this is kind of peak peak uh, Silicon Valley dystopia. Yeah. 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 And, you know, like the thing is that. We always knew it could get worse, right? Like throwback Charlotte, like anti-fascist already, like all of 2015, 2016, we were seeing kind of the push to censor the right, the disregard of the alt-right, meaning look, episode one of SPS, it was about kill all normies, right? We were seeing the way that this sort of quote unquote online culture was already attempting to sort of be like, no, we need to shut down the alt-right. We need to not give them a platform. And, you know, and the ACLU basically like held on strong 
uh, with a few exceptions, I believe, exactly around this point, this this time. It became controversial that yeah. they defended people for wanting to protest. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, they're split now. The ACLU is split on this really? issue. Oh. Yeah, that's why the ex-director of the ACLU, Ira Glasser, mm. was on an interview with uh, Glenn Greenwald talking about why they would defend neo-Nazi fascists, the right-wingers, and their right to protest and defend them from being persecuted by the state because the ACLU and its critics were divided like on this issue, whether that some, that's a legacy that they want to continue now, given the change right. circumstance, i.e. Trump, right? Like, that's, yeah. that's what they mean. Um, and so there's a real threat that that kind of liberal... That sort of liberalism that kind of defends of civil rights, uh, free speech, it's on his way out. Um, and that's this is another example of it. I feel like a few years ago we were already having to defend, you know, the First Amendment, uh, which is in itself already an embarrassing thing that one has to defend it, um, that we cannot take it for granted. It is actually something that terrifies me precisely because the nature of the truth there has been truly blurred and disregarded. And so who gets to decide the truth now? I mean, maybe it's a question that we were already asking in the post-truth era of early Trump campaign. But now, right, it's the shift to to the institutions, to the major, you know, actually to the most powerful companies in the world, uh, aligned with the most powerful party in the world, um, that's actually quite, quite scary. Hmm. It's frustrating because I guess the shift really did happen around the election, right? Like this also marks the Glenn Greenwald moment of breaking with the intercept a few days before the election because they didn't let him publish the Biden piece. Of course, everybody knows this now. Yeah, the liberals, the liberals are split, right? So that's that's a development that's happening at the moment, and and it's the split. The fault lines are sharpening, and you know Matt Taibbi. And um, Glenn Greenwald is is part of of that split. Everyone's talking about realignment. Yeah. Print media might become popular again in a different way. Um, people are going to find, you know, I don't think that they're going to there's going to be a flight from social media. But I think that <laughs> people are, are people should start considering other uh, alternatives. Yeah. It might just be that like social media becomes a like a link tree. You know that site link tree yeah, that yeah, like, yeah, connects yeah, yeah, yeah. all your websites. You know, it's like social media will just be like a redirect. Like people will just be like if you want to know more about this, click here and then like you'll get taken to somewhere else yeah. where like the real information That's is, true. you know? Yeah, I mean in a sense of course we already have the podcast world and plenty of online publications. I don't know how optimistic I am about the green world model. Um, like how long it's going to last. But I feel like Greenwald has also been pushing hard on the Snowden pardon. You know, it is a hope that I have that Trump will just pardon like Assange and Snowden and Chelsea Manning. Yeah. You know what's happening? It's like the delusion around Biden just needs to be maintained, right? The facade has been so massive and now the victory has happened and the facade just needs to be maintained. You know, and in fact, what we know, it is it was Biden who was telling Ecuador to to release Assange. It was Biden making those requests. Biden wants Assange in jail for life. Right. And this is what the Democrats, the Democrats actually ended up being the ones who were hunting down the WikiLeaks people and the anti-war or the anti-war leaks. 
And the thing is that there's no war right now to actually connect these things to people, like what happened with Snowden and Assange and Chelsea Manning, sort of historical memory sort of gone. And look what they were trying to reveal, right? Uh, you know, they also tried to throw Snowden into the whole Russia controversy, right? They tried to say, like, oh, he was leaking things to the Russians. And he's like, look, up to this day, not a single proof of that has been shown. Oh, my God. You'd think that that shit would get tired. But, like, recently, you know, because it came out that William Barr, General Attorney William Barr, had um, he had blocked uh, information coming out from the investigation of Hunter Biden. Mm-hmm. So Hunter Biden is involved in some dodgy shit. Um, of course. Trump brought this up during the debates and stuff. And, you know, Joe Biden was like, no, these are just like made up. Like, you know, what you're talking about well, as it turns out that, you know, the investigation showed a lot of convincing evidence that he's involved in some shady shit. And William Barr had um, uh, made sure that that information didn't get out before the election. So now, like some of the media, some of the liberal media outlets are saying, oh, no, no, no. That stuff about Hunter Biden, that's just some Russia shit. Like, that's just some misinformation by the Russians. Like, don't don't believe that investigate. No, that's that's just that's just some made up shit. How convenient. You know, and it's just like crazy. How convenient. It's crazy how that narrative just doesn't die. Like that can just be the line and people still buy it as like an explanation for everything. Like you heard some shady shit about the Democrats. No, that's just some Russian shit. Yeah. That's just some, no, you, you heard about like Assange finding out some some dodgy shit. No, no, no. That's just the Russians. Yeah. That's just, you know, no, no, no. He's just an agent for the Russians. Yeah. Like everything's just like the Russians. It's a great scapegoat, though. It's a great, it's a great scapegoat. Yeah, people are into it. Also feels like these people can't get over the Cold War, right? It's like they haven't overcome the Cold War. They need like the throwback to the Cold War. Meaning, right, like cancel culture, like we, when we started talking about the return of the culture wars with Trump, I felt like it was kind of like this fantasy, like bring back the 80s and the war of the 80s, right? Um, but it actually now, it's the Democrats who have really censored the voices and the the difference of opinion. Well, they were doing that during the Cold War too. I mean, that's not, yeah. that's so continuity. That's yeah. <laughs> not discontinuity. <laughs> Uh, yeah, man, let's see what like 2021 brings. But I guess I expect millennial media, maybe and Zoomer media, what the kids are going to be paying attention to. But I feel like the situation's kind of fucked and there's no like turning this this thing back around. And I just hope people recognize how much of like this is the Democratic Party. This is neoliberalism 101 happening in front of you. Cancel culture in complete agreement with Democratic yeah. Party censorship. Yeah. Yeah. Follow us on our new Substack. <laughs> That's what we'll be. <laughs> Next to Matt Taibbi. <laughs> <laughs> got published in the PR panel. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> we have a couple of articles in the 2020 November 2020 issue Platypus Review 131 and both of us talked about the culture wars in the age of Trump. Yeah, but we were um I guess it's important to say like we were invited by the Jena chapter in Germany to do uh, teaching. Basically, my piece went first and Pam's piece went second, the presentations-wise, because what I try to do is really create a setup for the first decade of Platypus from 2006 to 2016 and kind of how important that period was to understanding sort of the kind of crisis that actually took place in 2016, crisis of neoliberalism that took place in 2016 that Trump and Brexit represented, for example, and but also the other side, Bernie Sanders and Corbyn. Um, and, you know, what I found was that I needed to look at the history of how 
Platypus has traced sort of the demise of the left and the death of the left in our first decade and so in a sense kind of try to understand what 2020 was really mm-hmm. all about mm-hmm. um like as as a new inflection point that sort of raises a recent history yeah for us and the piece that i wrote was taking the pedagogical lessons of those first 10 years of platypus or critique of the new left identity politics is an outgrowth of a frustrated liberalism from the 1960s and 1970s and so exactly. some of the things that I quote are Ben Blumberg's article on black nationalism from 2010. And, you know, the first reading group that we ever had in Platypus was on the new left and the history of the new left. And so a lot of this stuff comes to bear. Right. And we focus on this problem of how the death of the left has made politics really difficult to grasp. And it is, it's being exactly. expressed as a sort of cultural frustration. And we kind of lost the plot there. And so we're trying to regain what the political perspective um, that is being rehearsed under the name of culture, what, what that's about. We were triggered, Laurie and I were triggered by Biden being, you know, <laughs> Obama's VP, right? And so there this, uh, yeah. this necessary kind of delusion of the Obama years, the can't we just go back to a progressive president delusion, that idea that's back Right. I showed up to a Platypus coffee break in Oregon and there was a new participant. Hello, if you're listening. Right. And he sort of said like, well, I was surprised that, you know, Obama never came out for Bernie. And Mm. I'm like, in what world do you expect Obama to come out for Bernie when, first of all, Biden was his VP. And that already sort of marked the fact that like this was a person who actually did not experience the disappointment of Obama's presidency and and sort of reiterated for me the need like yeah. no we have to remind people like the expectations of obama were not at all met. it's not even remind right it's like the left never learns its lessons and so platypus yeah. has to mark time in order to learn from defeat otherwise people just keep peddling the narrative of progress exactly so if you want to read more about this you can look at platypus1917.org in the 131st issue of the platypus review and read both of our articles there mine is the culture wars in the age of trump and pam's yours is uh the cancel wars legacy of the cultural turn in the age of trump basically the age of trump trying to explain a political dance of it all trying to explain (laughs) enjoy okay okay Bye. bye guys Demonstrations are expected across France today in a show of solidarity after the beheading of a teacher on his way home from school. Thousands gathered in central Paris to pay their respects to Samuel Paty, who was killed after showing cartoons of the Muslim prophet Muhammad in a class on freedom of expression. Three people have been killed in a knife attack in the French city of Nice. It happened near a church, and the mayor of Nice has said that everything suggests it was a terrorist attack. The suspect, who witnesses say tried to behead one of his victims, was shot by police and is now being treated in hospital. President Macron is on his way to the city. A massive manhunt is underway in Austria as police search for those behind a suspected Islamist terror attack in Vienna. Four people were killed when at least one gunman opened fire in the city centre. Another 17 people were wounded. In 
light of the recent attacks in Austria and France, different parts of the left had come out uh, against these attacks, but also against the state response to this attack. And so there are many different perspectives and Andreas is going to cover some of these things and we'll be discussing them. Yeah, thanks, Pam. Uh, apart from unanimously condemning uh, these attacks, there is strong disagreement within, I think, especially the German-speaking left, concerning how uh, leftists should react to these attacks. There's not only a disagreement on how the left should uh, react to these attacks, but also on what they actually mean politically, and I think how to deal with Islamism in general. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to look at different aspects leftist groups are emphasizing about these events, about their critique. And that's why uh, we want to look at their disagreements and how they relate to what we in Platypus call the crisis or, or the death of the left. This, as we see it, is not just a recent phenomenon, but goes back to the deeper history of the left and of their failure. The response by the French state has been to crack down on Muslim communities, to crack down on mosques, to fight against what they're calling Islamic separatism, right? And so there's been this attempt to pass these laws that would stop the sort of uh, separate education of uh, Muslim children, etc. But the French, the French officials have also used kind of like radical bourgeois terminology as well in defense of law and order against these civil society institutions. A big one that collapsed in France was the collective against Islamophobia. I'm not sure of the history of that, but I know they folded as well. In Austria, though, I'm not sure, like what has been the Austrian state response? It's, it's actually very similar to this. The Austrian state has closed down several mosques where the attacker was seen in. The left is responding to both the political Islamic attacks as well as the the state cracking down. Yeah, one can say that, that these are the main two political phenomena the left is trying to address, uh, or at least the left groups that I had a look at. I attended a memorial event here in Vienna at the site of where the terrorist attack happened. There were speeches given by several politicians as well as representatives of Muslim and Jewish student organizations. Right after the memorial event, there was a protest march organized by the Viennese Antifa, and that protest march was directed against the right-wing demonstration happening at the same time. I spoke to several leftists attending the crowd. Two of them were from an organization called Der Funke. Der Funke is the Austrian fraction of the IMT, the International Marxist Tendency, they're Trotskyists and their main point is to work within the so-called traditional organizations of the working class. Here in Austria, that means especially within the youth organization of the Social Democratic Party. So the IMT originated in this attempt to work within the Labour Party, their Grantites, so after Ted Grant, uh, he's a South African-born British Trotskyist and the founder of the Trotskyist militant group that was supposed to work within the Labour Party. And so these Trotskyists as well in Austria, they think that it's possible to work within the established party. Okay, and are you affiliated, are you a part or a member of any left organization? I am a member of the Funke, a Marxist okay. organization, stand for socialism. So what do you think the first response of the left should be to these attacks? 
Yeah, the first response obviously should be to uh, condemn them and show what reactionary ideology uh, lies behind, behind such attacks. But then also the, the answer must be to refuse uh, national unity, which is now proposed by all the right-wing conservative politicians because and also the liberals, because they, their politics, they made, made way for this division with the racism, with their anti-social policies and things like that. So I would say no to terrorism, but also no to national unity. No to racism, no to national unity, right? So what's left, I guess, in their view is that the only reaction or the only thing the left has to do is organize society based on an analysis of class contradiction. I think that's their main point, that you have to organize the working class. Or, as they say it also in an article that we can link to here in this episode, that they see it as their aim to defend the unity of the working class and thus the basis for the struggle uh, for socialism. I was just about to bring that line up because I, I found that shocking when I read it because they were like, defend the unity of the working class. And I was, I don't know about you, but where, where's this unity of the working class? And they're also critiquing the kind of the false, the gloss of, of the leaders like Macron um, that call for solidarity in these times. But they say it's just the solidarity of, of rulers, essentially. I found it interesting that there is this strong emphasis that uh, Islamism and right-wing agitation are two sides of the same barbaric coin. He said it in the interview as well, right? That the fascists and the Islamo-fascists, they're both right-wingers. Their response is that the state actions are actually fueling racism, right? So that they're against the state because it divides the working class and therefore the unity of the working class. That seems to be like the general perspective, that they critique the Islamic right-wing politics as well as they critique the fascists that have come out to this rally. What therefore is for the working class and what they consider to be the working class is to uphold these traditional institutions of labor. The only way to organize, I guess, in, in their view, the unity of the working class is to work within these parties and doing this preparatory entrism. And it's really questionable, at least to my uh, mind, in how far this is going to actually uh, lead to the aim of socialism, in their view. Uh, we also looked at an article published by Marx21, which is also a Trotskyist organization in Germany that tries to work a lot, but not exclusively, within the party Die Linke. This, this being an offshoot of the international socialist tendency. So Cliffites, and so they work within Die Linke. Their main argument, or in terms of how the left should react to these attacks, is not so much focused on, well, organizing or defending the unity of the working class, but more try to be in solidarity within Muslim civil society. So it seems as a more direct reaction to the state cracking down on Muslim society, the state sort of throwing overboard liberal rights. So they want to they wanna decry the racism, right? That's their point. They want to say the state is racist. Their aim is to have practical solidarity with the Muslim community and its organizations that are threatened by government and by these fascists. And that should be key for the left. Well, I mean, the thing I just wanted to say is that the aim, at least it seems to me from their article, first of all, is anti-racism, right? So there's less talk about class or socialism in the, in, in the first place. It's more about this fight against racism. This is what we have to focus on now. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
on the anti-racism, I was just thinking about um, that maybe, I don't know, maybe we have to wait until the whole of society is sufficiently anti-racist before the left can start to, I don't know, do anything. Or maybe that's the success of like the left in their eyes, which is an authoritarian impulse in itself. So the specious argument here, obviously people in Muslim communities are against political Islam. Right. Like the the great majority of French Muslim people are against political Islam. I think it's specious, for example, when they talk about the French Council for Muslim Religion um, and how that has been under the eye of Macron, how they defend it as some kind of cultural institution and don't actually acknowledge the political propaganda role that these cultural institutions play. This can be seen in the history, like the, I guess, the liquidation of Trotskyism. And it, you're bringing to mind somebody like Tony Cliff for me. On the part of Marx 21, I feel like this, this history is not digested and is just kind of regurgitated in this further degraded way. The concessions that somebody like Cliff thought he was making to achieve his end goal and all of that today just becomes, you know, just lost. As an end in itself, right? Like whereas Cliff... Um, this comes out in the Ian Birchall interview that Ephraim led um, about how within his own generation, Tony Cliff realized that they were making concessions so that they could win over the movement and that then in the long run, they would win those people over to socialism because that was the real goal. Here in this article in the Marx 21, anti-racism is the end goal, right? Like it, that is an end in itself. So yeah, Cliff in his own way, in his own moment, is also liquidating the left and the history of the left. Again, it appears differently today and unreflected upon. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's something that maybe touches close to home for some of us in Platypus because, you know, the origins of Platypus are during the second Iraq war, the 2006-2007, where uh, a lot of the left uh, apologized for the quote-unquote Islamic resistance against American imperialism. In Platypus, we went back to try to understand how in previous years, in, in the 1970s, in the late 70s, for example, Trotskyists like the Spartacist League had critiqued the left for being bedfellows with the Islamic anti-imperialists, right? So there was a Trotskyist position in 1979 against the uh, solidarity with anti-imperialist political Islam. That was like an important historical memory that Platypus dug up in order to critique how the left in 2006-2007 had sort of lost its own understanding of the fight for socialism. And so reading this uh, Marx 21 article of anti-racism as an end in itself and the support for the Muslim community, the question of socialism seems to have dropped out that's interesting because that leads to the more open question of how the left should actually interact and react to conservative ideologies such as conservative Islamism, right? How can they interact? To my mind, it's always a question of who uses whom and for what. I mean, you can say, and this is why Marx 21 has been criticized a lot, that this question is not answered in their favor, right? The political strategy of Marx 21 and this fight in the left for anti-racism is to provide a stage, at least in some parts for really conservative Muslim forces, 
in order to not sort of from the start churn off migrant communities for their own organization. It's very questionable if this political strategy is, you know, successful. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think the kernel of truth, let me just be generous to this, this article. The kernel of truth is they're saying, look, if these organizations are banned without any counter protests, who's next? They're ringing the bell and they're ringing the alarm rather, right? Obviously, if they're going to shut down these civil society organizations, you know, we're giving the state power to act in ways that it would turn against the left as well. And that's true. <laughs> What you just listened to were some sound bites from the memorial event here in Vienna saying uh, we are Vienna, we are the love, we are peaceful, we are together, we are the future. For the next part of the episode I talked with Michael Fischer. Michael Fischer was active in a lot of different left organizations here in Austria. He was a member of the Young Greens, the youth organization of the Social Democratic Party. He also was a member of an anti-fascist group where he came in contact with so-called anti-German theory. What that is exactly will we examine later on in the last part of this episode. He recently wrote an article for the anti-German magazine Bahamas and he talked to me about how the left should respond to these events. Thanks for taking the time and doing this interview with me. I would like to start um, by asking you if you are a member of any left group and if so, could you please describe this group in a few sentences? Thank you for having me. I'm not at the moment a member of any left-wing or communist groups, but in the last 20 years I was involved in several communist groups and left-wing groups. Most recently I wrote an article about Robin DiAngelo and the new race series for the last issue of the anti-German magazine Bahamas. What brought you to the left originally? Uh, to be honest, I actually don't know. <laughs> Maybe it was the anti-racism of the left who attracted me. In the 90s, I played in a local youth football team and most of the parents of my teammates come from various countries, most of them from Turkey and ex-Yugoslavia. This experience led to two thoughts. First, racism is an ugly ideology. And second, I learned to see people not as a part of an ethnic group. When I was 16, I bought a book about socialism And after that, a George Orwell homage to Catalonia. That's the starting point when I get involved into left politics. Some friends of mine were organized in the Socialist Youth and they invited me to a meeting. I only attend two times. In the second meeting, I followed the boring discussions and raised my hand and asked, nice discussion, but what about socialism? They told me not every problem can be solved with socialism. As a consequence, I never attend a meeting of this group again. 
just for clarification, is this the Socialist Youth? What kind of group is it? It was the youth of the Social Democratic Party in Austria. This group turned uh, into a Trotskyist group after that. This was not the only membership in a left-wing group. After that, I was in a, a even more boring uh, anarchist group and in the Green Alternative Youth. And in the mid of the 2000s, I joined an anti-fascist group because we had a serious uh, neo-Nazi problem then. Yeah, and around that time I came in contact with anti-German communism and they have a critique on anti-imperialism, anti-Semitism in the left and on Islam. And that was also the time I started to read the capital of Marx on some texts of Adorno and Horkheimer. Which um, anti-fascist group in the beginning of the 2000s? It was a local anti-fascist group from the western part of uh, Austria. We are only 10 people, but uh, the neo-Nazis are much more. We can't go out for a drink on the weekend when we go alone. That's the reason why we must organize ourselves. Did this group see itself in any specific tradition of historically leftist politics? Yeah, it, it was influenced of the anti-German critique. I can't speak for the whole group, but we have many discussions in the group about Marx and critical theory. A major influence uh, for me is the dialectical materialism of Marx and the critical theory of Adorno Horkheimer and the early works of Marcuse. From them, you can learn how the materialistic critique on contemporary society must evolve out of the actual conditions. And only this critique can be a guide for political actions. How do you think the left in general should react to the attacks of the last one and a half months, especially in uh, France and here in Vienna? To be short, the left should stop their support of political Islam. Their reaction on terror attacks are sadly always the same. No one really talks about the victims of an Islamic terror attack. And for the majority of the left, the real victims are Muslims. They also think these attacks have nothing to do with religion or Islam. They believe that violent attacks and terrorism in the name of Islam are only an abuse of a peaceful religion. But when you look back in the Middle East of the 7th century, the emerge of Islam doesn't look that peaceful to me. There is a lot of leftist critique on what is called a racist quote-unquote backlash after these attacks. For example, several people with Muslim background were attacked on the street. The state in Austria, as well as in France, ordered the search of several mosques. So there was a very hard crackdown on, you could say, Muslim civil society. What do you think of that? The first question is, is this motivated by racism or is this motivated by a political critique? You can say this direct if the actions of the state are motivated by uh, political issues or racism. My critique is centered on the left. Uh, after the attacks in Vienna, most of the left groups in Austria condemn anti-Muslim racism and Islamophobia. But they don't have any clue about the uh, interaction between conservative and political Islam. Very conservative Muslim organizations like the IGGÖ, It's the Muslim community in Austria and the Muslim youth get a huge platform in left and liberal media. 
To be clear, the term Islamophobia is mostly propaganda. In this ideology, the Muslims are the Jews of today. And I think that's really crazy. In the Second World War, there are three explicitly Muslim divisions of the SS. National Socialism hasn't any problems with Islam. The Mufti of Jerusalem, Amin al-Husseini, lived two years in Germany and produced Nazi propaganda for the Middle East. Today, the Palestinian wing of the Muslim Brotherhood, the Hamas, wants to kill as many Jews as possible. They also think the Jews stand behind the French and Russian revolution. To come one time back to the term Islamophobia, everyone who has a critique on Islam is called an Islamophobe. It's used to condemn right-wing populism on one side and left and liberal critique on Islam. And it's often used against a minority of liberal and ex-Muslims. And the term has two functions. Uh, it defends political and conservative Islam from critique of outsiders and it's used against dissidents from inside the migrant community in Austria. You said that the left often provides a stage, so to say, for conservative Muslim forces. Why do you think that is? What do you think the political strategy behind that is? I think it has something to do with this uh, pluralist idea of Marxism. In a Marxist tradition, I think it's a very anti-materialistic way of thinking because they think that society is a society full of different groups and you can not make class politics backed by economic interests. You can only bring together different groups with different interests behind a slogan against Islamophobia, for LGBTQ rights, for whatever. But uh, there are no economic interests that are backing this political agenda. And I think it's, it's not really Marxism. You mentioned before also that you were involved in groups that had also a critique of anti-imperialism. So I want to talk about anti-imperialism a bit because this term comes up a lot within the left in the discussions about what position the left should take regarding these terror attacks. What do you think the notion of anti-imperialism actually entails within this discussion? I think you must differentiate uh, between um, anti-imperialism before the end of history, before the decline of the Soviet Union, because this anti-imperialism was connected to an idea of emancipation. The Soviet Union have uh, some influence of anti-imperialistic uh, movements in the, in the Tricon and the influence wasn't the baddest. So I think uh, the anti-imperialism after the Second World War uh, must be seen in a different light than the uh, temporary uh, anti-imperialism of today who is mostly an Islamic anti-imperialism. Is there anything within the history of the left that, regarding its relation to Islamist terror, we can learn from today, positively or negatively? When you look back in history, uh, you will see that the rise of political Islam in the 1970s has nothing to do with right-wing populism in Europe, which emerged in the 80s and 90s. The Islamic anti-imperialism turned not only against the USA and the Shah of Persia in the year of 1979, it also fought against the Communist Party in Afghanistan, who wanted to initiate a land reform and educate women. Uh, we should have no illusion about this. Political Islamists also hate communism. The problem today is that the material conditions under postmodern capitalism benefit political Islam and jihadism. 
Today the hope and progress and the revolution to change society aren't backed by the rapid development of Fordist capitalism. Contemporary capitalism is in a crisis and the growth rates decline. Hope for change is fading away and these conditions are perfect for identitarian movements who don't want a better society but a purer one. You mentioned that critique coming from the left should be focused on objective conditions. So what do you think in terms of political strategy should be the position again regarding these Islamist terror attacks? Unluckily, my influence and that of my comrades uh, on society is very small. But I hope our critique can influence some people on the left. The majority of the contemporary left in Austria is an unconscious ally of political Islam. They help them to spread their propaganda and this leads to dangerous consequences because there is an interaction between political Islam and jihadism. The organizations are rivals, but the jihadists benefit from the agenda of the conservative groups as they help to establish a rigid form of Islam in the migrant community. I have two examples to, to back this uh, interaction between conservative political Islam and jihadists. There is a psychoanalyst who is called Feti Ben Slama. In his book, he describes the mechanism of radicalization. And it's not so much the racism that exists in the Austrian society who fuels this process. Ben Slama argues that the process of radicalization rather stems from the anxiety of Muslims. It stems from the fear of Muslims that they could fall for the temptations of an un-Islamic society and then becomes outsiders in their own group. To overcome this uh, anxiety, they want to become super-Muslims, so they turn violent against the source of their temptations. In the attacks in Vienna, the jihadists attacked bars, where people drink beer, smoke cigarettes and listen to music. And it was no coincidence that the shooting started nearby a synagogue. On the other hand, Friedrich Engels described a similar mechanism in a footnote of his work about early Christianity. He writes that Islam is a religion of merchants and Bedouins. For him, this is the reason for the periodic clashes in Islamic society. The merchants and the cities turned away from the Islamic law. That angers the poor and religious Bedouins who looked envious on their wealth. They gather behind the Mahdi or another religious leader and conquer the wealth city. But they don't change the economic base of the society. So 100 years later, they become un-Islamic themselves. And the next Islamic movement is ready to conquer the city. And I think this mechanism must be destroyed. The left should have an eye on this mechanism. When they uh, support political Islam, they fuel exactly this mechanism. It has not only disastrous consequences in case of Islamic terrorism, it only has disastrous consequences for communist class politics. Because the term Islamophobia and the agenda of the political Islam push the homogenization of the Turkish migrant community in Austria. Uh, this community is not a class, but it entails classes. This class division is veiled behind the term Islamophobia. And that's a real threat for communist class politics. In combating these mechanisms that you just described, what form of political organization the left should take to do that, in your opinion? I wish for a party-oriented politic, 
but I don't see a socialist party emerging uh, at the moment in Austria. I see left-wing parties who aren't really Marxist. They are anti-materialist parties who only uh, talk about cultural uh, aspects of life and not uh, economic interests of a class. What makes you different from certain Trotskyist groups that want to base their analysis uh, exactly on class and not on community-based identity? I see class in a different way because uh, what I hear about Trotskyists and what I hear from Trotskyists is that everyone who gets a salary is working class. I don't think that that's really uh, matching contemporary society. I think you can uh, get a salary and be working class and you get a salary and you can be uh, a member of the middle class or on the upper class. I don't think this is a very good distinction between classes. I think the main difference between me and these uh, Trotsky's groups are that I think the real problem in contemporary society is that there is no real communist position in the discussion. You can on, uh, on one side side with the Islamists against uh, Islamophobia in society and on the other hand, side with the government. And I think post positions aren't real communist positions. But the problem is the left don't articulate a real communist position in the struggle. Why do you think is that, that there is no uh, communist position, no independent also political force that could back these communist uh, positions? And what do you think should be done against it? I think it has something to do with the emerge of the new left in the 60s and 70s. There were class exchange, I think. Till then, after the Second World War, social democratic parties have some working class support. Uh, with the new left, many people from the middle class, or you can call it uh, the professional managerial class, come into left-wing parties. And I think that changed the direction of this party. The professional managerial class have class interests by themselves. They don't recognize it, really. They look down on the working class and refuses to any class politics and economic interests that this class has. With the new left, the political direction of this part has changed, uh, changed massively. Their questions centers around cultural questions and not so much on economic interests of the working class. And I think that's a real threat for communist politics. You also don't have to forget the influence of the new left on the decline of the forest capitalism and the emerge of the neoliberal or postmodern capitalism because they changed some rules in the workspace or have, have an influence uh, on culture from the 80s uh, till now. I think they, they have their part in the emerge of the neoliberal capitalism. How do you think these obstacles that, when I understand you correctly, stem from political and cultural achievements of the new left, those obstacles for the formation of an independent political party for the left that could formulate communists or Marxist positions again, how do you think these obstacles can be overcome today? I think you must distinguish yourself and your position from the position of the contemporary left. And you must show what the difference between 
your position and their positions are. I think you must also show that their position don't lead to socialism. It only leads more into the uh, contemporary capitalist barbarism. Thanks for having me. Jan is a Platypus member for several years now. He's based in Frankfurt and has worked on a range of topics, including uh, anti-imperialism and um, and very interesting teaching on Althusser and Marxism. So Jan, thanks again for being here. I'm very interested in the topic. So I was really surprised to hear Fischer's response to current events, um, as it seems that anti-Germans are becoming more similar than the rest of the left in their response. Uh, it seems that predominantly uh, the return to class politics is the overwhelming concern or takeaway uh, from the crisis of neoliberalism and anti-Germans are following here. Uh, the trends we already see with uh, the Labour Party uh, in the United Kingdom and uh, the USA in America. While uh, previously um, in the 90s and, and the early 2000s, the anti-Germans uh, effectively tried to uh, have their own current of the left and uh, try to be uh, uh, very critical of the rest and especially critical of uh, the prospects to return to direct politics. Thanks, Jan. Could I ask you just uh, for clarification, could you give us a very brief or short introduction on what is uh, or what you called anti-German, like anti-German tendency or anti-German politics? Because I think uh, a lot of listeners um, won't be familiar with that uh, history or tradition within the left. Mm. Sure. Um, so the original name uh, began with uh, the German reunification process the left referred to in, in the 80s and the beginning of the 90s as the counter-revolution, uh, the fall of uh, the Berlin Wall. And the anti-Germans, uh, the name was coined in, in the process of forming a big alliance between various tendencies and the German left to oppose this reunification in, in Germany. And uh, yeah, they, they got their name uh, from from this original period, which lasted only for a few years, you can say like from uh, 89 to uh, 92 maybe. Uh, but afterwards they were um, still called anti-Germans because they were the rad radical tendencies uh, that actually uh, wanted uh, to oppose uh, the existing um, political uh, regime in, in, in Germany and uh, to go for a more profound change. Uh, their political goal was uh, also concentrated um, uh, on on the left and they tried to reformulate a leftist politics after the fall of uh, the real existing socialism. You mentioned before that uh, you were surprised to see that this anti-German position is now becoming more and more similar to the rest of the left again. You stated that they are interested in class-based politics uh, more and more. And I also was interested in that because this is why I asked uh, Fischer in what way would he differentiate his position or um, that what he thinks the left should do from uh, Trotsky's attempts or attempts from Trotsky's groups such as the IMT in saying that, well, we have to 
have a class, we have to base our politics on class analysis. We have to formulate an independent communist position again to not fall for either the side of the Islamists or the side of the government. What, what did you make of it? Fischer said that uh, he differentiates his position um, from Trotsky's by saying that, well, not everybody who earns a salary is can be considered to be a member of the working class. This is not a good basis of analysis when it comes to, to class analysis or uh, a materialistic critique. What did you think of that? Well, I think it was um, the weakest part, maybe, of what Fischer had to say and the least interesting. The, you have to know that the anti-Germans started out in this very um, yeah, compounded history of the German left, which has known since uh, uh, for a long time, especially since the 20s, uh, the division between anti-imperialist tendencies and anti-fascist uh, tendencies. And uh, anti-Germans tried to revive a very uh, uh, radical uh, stake in the part of this anti-fascist uh, uh, tendency and they originally had the, t uh, the, the theory or uh, the perception that it was impossible to uh, organize uh, the proletariat and uh, uh, they stated very profoundly that especially the German proletariat would not be uh, perceptible for this kind of politics. So I think uh, Fischer is very eclectic here and he picks up uh, um, ideas from various trends uh, that uh, are very new on, on uh, uh, to him and and that are more um, uh, out there and and uh, this crisis of neoliberalism and are more uh, let's say uh, propagated by uh, Jacobin and the Tribune magazine for example and I think it's a kind of despair on the sides of the anti-German that they are now returning to class politics as they see that hmm. their original trend you know uh, that they uh, wanted to have a very militant uh, uh, anti-fascism and therefore, for example, uh, a supported uh, U.S. intervention in the Middle East and so on, obviously failed. So uh, they are uh, a very militant fight against anti-Semitism and uh, the new fascism, what they would say is Islamism, uh, failed and therefore they are looking for uh, a new a new path. And um, it's I think it's a sign of disorientation on part of Fischer's. You you just mentioned uh, looking for a new path. I also thought of this when Fisher mentioned that he wishes for party-oriented politics. And I thought uh, to myself, okay, what would that actually entail? To be honest, the first thing that came to my mind was something like a Leninist conception of an uh, avant-garde party for the uh, for the proletariat. What do you think Fischer has in mind when he wishes for party-oriented politics? I don't know what he means with a communist critique. Um, I have no idea uh, what he's talking about uh, when he speaks of this party-oriented politics. Uh, I would turn the question around and uh, would like uh, to know uh, how uh, the new anti-German path, uh, so to speak, uh, relates to the real existing parties, namely in Germany, Die Linke, in uh, Austria, the SPÖ, uh, Labour, uh, the Democrats and so on. And uh, I can only speculate on uh, what uh, Fischer tries to say here, but I also have in mind uh, what Jan Greber said on our Leipzig conference, and maybe you can uh, link this uh, later in the description, uh, that he uh, explicitly said that he's looking for a new social democratic politics, reviving the welfare state. 
So um, this is also why I had the impression they have become very similar to the rest of the left, that all they have to offer inside of the crisis of neoliberalism is a return to previous uh, forms of, uh, of uh, capitalism. And of course, we know that these previous forms of capitalism have produced the presence uh, the present we live in. So I think it's a kind of uh, no offer. The history of the left comes up in the interview in an interesting way. When you asked him, where does this disorientation, this dropping out of class politics comes from? He says, it comes from the new left. And the problem was that you had this professional managerial class that led the movement and they dismantled the welfare state and in doing so they introduced neoliberalist ideas and laid the path for neoliberalism i think that he is taking stock of the history of the left in a way that agrees with this idea that what they need to do right now is critique the neoliberal conditions of of the left yeah Perhaps we should have asked him about this issue of social democracy and whether or not that's the um, horizon of possibility, if that's the new path for the anti-Germans. Because I would also like to mention that the bulk of the followers of the anti-Germans um, have been led into existing parties. You know, In every German <clears throat> uh, party there is a wing uh, and uh, now... Uh, most prominently represented uh, by uh, the F German foreign minister uh, uh, Maas, uh, who has a background in, uh, and, and at least uh, uh, was affiliated for a certain time with uh, this uh, broader spectrum of anti-German, anti-fascist uh, left and uh, is known for his uh, firm stance on solidarity with Israel. So lots of anti-German uh, kids, uh, so to speak, uh, entered these parties and uh, followed their politics uh, there. So yeah, it's very unclear what the, the relation to um, independent left politics would be. I would like to um, bring the discussion back a bit again to uh, the attacks and the reaction of the left and what we saw and uh, can see as reactions from the left. And when I asked Fischer um, what the left should actually do, in his opinion, as a reaction of these attacks, one of the first things he said, the left has to stop its support or alliances with political Islam. And I asked why he thinks that the left actually tries or let's say more specifically groups like Marx 21, a Trotskyist group we already mentioned before in the segment. I asked him why he thinks that Trotskyist groups or parts of the left actually invite people from very conservative Muslim organizations to speak on their events. And he mentioned, and this ties in now to what you, Jan, and, and Pam, you just mentioned, he says that this is due to uh, a multicultural um, or a pluralistic view of Marxism that the left tries to be as inclusive as possible in organizing, so to speak, their, their own uh, support. And I wanted to, to ask you, Jan, what do you think of that, of that claim, of that argument that is being made, that the left has to stop their support or their uh, work or their, um, their relationships with any kind of conservative Islam forces? I mean, it's obviously true. Uh, um, I've seen leftist event that uh, re invite uh, really conservative right-wing uh, Islamist forces and um, I would say it's accurate but nevertheless um, I think what both are missing um, the Trotskyist perspective uh, so to speak 
which is critical of the government reaction and uh, the anti-German uh, position, which is critical of Islamism, is that uh, Islamism and, and Bonapartism, uh, so to speak, in the name of government, in the government are uh, conditioned by one another historically and uh, on a, a society level. I think um, what really surprised me is that Fischer is offering, in contrast to this kind of, uh, uh, what he said is multiculturalist Marxism, he's just offering a new definition of the left as simply opposed flatly uh, to the right, you know, just adding uh, to the we are anti-sexist, anti-racist, anti-capitalist, oh, and we're also opposed to uh, anti-Semitism and Islamism. And uh, I think this w won't do, as we know that uh, Islamism uh, uh, was, especially in the Near East, a symptom of uh, really uh, the uh, disastrous politics of the left, which didn't achieve revolution and everything, I think, um, short of, uh, of, of this kind of revolutionary politics will end up reinforcing um, uh, this, uh, this kinds of right-wing pathologies. And uh, so I think both are missing uh, this um, uh, this conditioning of uh, uh, the various uh, varieties of the right, uh, Islamism and, and Bonapartism. I was thinking about that and I was thinking, yeah, there's this like, liquidation of the Trotskyist left and this open church policy of just supporting any of the most oppressed or just getting behind like anti-racism or or whatever, um, and hosting like these conservative figures as the left hosting these conservative figures, which is obviously a complete liquidation of the left. And then I was reminded of the, the reading the reading group, and we do the, the 60s and the women's question, the black question. Like a discontent from society could potentially come from anywhere, but it would need to be pursued beyond itself through its own internal self-contradictions, which we've not seen yeah. with like the, the liquidation of the black question into into the status quo. Absolutely. Opposing the right won't do. The left needs to, you know, go beyond uh, this and uh, work through the inner contradictions of society. And, and I think that uh, the anti-Germans uh, and uh, um, the Isl uh, in, a, in a very sim similar way to how the Trotskyists, for example, treat racism, they don't really treat it as a problem of society, but rather as a problem of individual groups, in the sense that you can oppose Opposing Islamism means to be uh, militantly against a variety of groups. And uh, what they are uh, lacking, I think, is the, uh, the consciousness uh, that uh, really Islamism and racism, of course, also uh, express a deep self-contradiction of, of society and points beyond itself. And uh, this is what uh, socialist parties uh, in the Second International try to pursue. I have to ask you about this part of the interview uh, on the issue of like Islamic society. So he like brings in angles to kind of situate the backwardness or the kind of conflict at the center of what he understands as like Islamic society. He says that like Islam is a religion of merchants and Bedouins and merchants and citizens move away from Islamic law. And then in opposition, Bedouins gather behind religious leaders against it. And this dynamic kind of repeats itself so that later those people that rebelled become un-Islamic. And then there's a deeper move towards like Islamism. And he's like, this is the dynamic. And when the left supports political Islam, they also fuel this mechanism. So what what is that about? What's that about? I think that um, the anti-Germans really believe 
what the Islam's, uh, Islamists tell, namely uh, that it's possible to break out of modernity and that it's possible uh, um, and Islamism as a, a reactionary a feudalist, uh, if you want so, uh, ideology that this would really, uh, this really could happen. Yeah, they're talking about to fall back uh, 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 behind bourgeois society. And of course, fascism, if you can say, is, is a tendency like this as well. And what they absolutely, I think, neglect or ignore is that uh, in, it's impossible. It's impossible. Even if fascism prevails, wins again, so to speak, the task of socialism would not disappear and uh, the self-contradictory of uh, a capitalist society wouldn't disappear. So I think they have a very mechanistically uh, mechanistic view of uh, capitalism in relation to bourgeois society, and they really think that it's possible, on the one hand, to defend uh, the conditions of, of uh, bourgeois right and uh, uh, Western values. Yeah, that's what what they're talking about, Western values, to defend Western values. Well, there is nobody in Western society who really defends Western values. Um, uh, luckily, uh, uh, bourgeois social relations are still necessary in capitalism and reinforce themselves in, in a in a contradictory way, but there is no political subjects to really pursue them. So that's what the whole project of Marxism was once about, you know, to uh, pursue uh, this uh, self-contradiction and to uh, uh, really continue this uh, enlightenment process and to be a second enlightenment and to fulfill in socialism uh, 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 the ideals of, of liberalism. Um, and I think the anti-Germans uh, are, um, uh, have this view that it's possible without Marxism, without a left, uh, um, uh, to have a defense of these liberal values. And therefore, uh, they were once in support of U.S. imperialism. Nowadays, you he hear less about this because obviously U.S. imperialism really messed up um, all these, uh, as a, made an even bigger mess of uh, the, the Middle East and uh, obviously also contributed to the rise of uh, political, organi uh, really fascistic organizations like the Islamic State. Um, it's very obvious that uh, this is an outcome of the disastrous uh, policies uh, pursued there. Yeah, they sound a bit like spiked online, just to kind of like connect mm. some of this, uh, the way in which the left kind of agrees with one another. Uh, the defense of Western values, the defense of Enlightenment ideals, without like a Marxist socialist left. But to be fair, to be fair, um, I mean this is this is interesting because what Fisher is trying to say uh, is that um, he's in my in my view he's trying to argue against, so to speak, to have to take the side of the government, to have to take the side of. I don't know what what maybe you just mentioned as Western values. So he is sort of looking for this, what he uh, says describes as party-oriented politics as an independent communist position. Um, so in my eyes, he cannot. I mean, this is where he differentiates right a bit from from typical or at least in the past typical anti-German stances, right? Or he would. I think in, this is where he would differentiate from statements like that uh, made by Jan Gerber on our panel, um, where he said, well, the only thing we can do is to um, defend the achievements of the, the welfare state. 
Well, I don't underestimate uh, previous anti-German positions. I think it was always part of uh, uh, the anti-Germans that they tried to have an independent position mm. uh, besides the government. For example, like all this support for U.S. imperialism, so to speak, uh, in the first Gulf War, in in the Balkan War, when ex-Yugoslavia uh, broke apart, and in uh, the, the second Gulf War, the Iraq invasion, Uh, all this position w were de back then oppositional positions against the government back then. The the anti-Germans, of course, opposed the US and the German uh, invasion in the Yugoslavia, uh, while they were uh, in, in support of the invasion of Iraq, uh, which was by that time in opposition to uh, the German government. And mm. um, so I think that impulse was always there, but... Um, I think uh, you have to see that in, uh, in the German political landscape, there's no no such thing as uh, what you have in the United States, a, a strong liberal uh, tradition. And the anti-Germans, um, I think, lean on that, uh, on that uh, tradition. And I think um, you have to view them for, the, uh, 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 for one moment as an international phenomenon. And I think taken out of this context, they would be uh, very much in, in support of the neocons in the United States, for example. Uh, and they were, of course. Uh, it's a very peculiar uh, German phenomenon that they have no mainstream party where they re really can full-heartedly support. Although I have to say I heard uh, Stefan Griegert, who also has contributed to the PR, uh, openly uh, in support of the German and the Austrian Greens. And then the neocons, as you already touched on earlier, arose parallel to uh, radical political Islam as well. as kind of two sides to the same coin. Yeah, I agree. So I just wanted to get back to mark time that Jan is trying to mark about this um, shift in the anti-German tradition. You said that at one point they were emphatic that you couldn't organize the German working class, that this was a problem, a historical obstacle. And now, through a kind of desperation, because it, you know, their their support for America in the Middle East fighting the Islamic fascists didn't work, they've returned to some kind of traditional perspective on we need a politics of the working class, we need a party that actually expresses the position of the working class. Is that right? Is a sort of summation of what you're saying? I think more or less this uh, is my impression I have, uh, but I think, and this is maybe a concluding uh, thought about all this affair, is that the anti-Germans really lack of a continuity uh, in the sense that uh, what we as Platypus were trying to do is to host this conversation and to protocol this conversation is um, that they now seem to lack a consciousness out of, of a lot of problems they diagnosed earlier on with the whole left and now fall into themselves. So I think now all this jargon about economic interests, uh, the class we have mm -hmm. to organize and so on. I mean, 20 years ago, I think anti-Germans would be very critical of. And uh, uh, I think we have to raise these questions again and to clarify where they're going. Because I, I'm sure they don't know themselves. Maybe they would yeah. uh, admit that, but... 
Yeah, there's a lot of short memory on the left. Thank you, Jan. Yeah. This was great. Thanks a lot uh, for having me. And we'll include all of those links that Jan mentioned in the episode description. So if you'd like to know more about the anti-Germans and the way in which platypus is engaged with this tradition, you can find the panels. Uh, some of them are not translated into English, so you can find the recordings in German, as well as any of the interviews in the German edition of the Platypus Review. Great. Thanks so much, guys. Thanks, Thanks Jan. Thanks. This has been a production of the Platypus Affiliated Society. Platypus is an international membership-based organization that hosts reading groups, public fora, research, and journalism focused on problems and tasks inherited from the old, new, and post-political left for the possibilities of emancipatory politics today. Deutschland muss sterben, damit wir leben können. Deutschland muss sterben, damit wir leben können. Platypus also publishes articles by thinkers and activists on the left in the monthly publication, The Platypus Review. Stolz sind die Hände der Bonzenschweine. If you want to learn more about Platypus and get involved, visit us at platypus1917.org. That's the word platypus followed by the numerals 1917.org. And join our YouTube channel and find us on Facebook under the Platypus Affiliated Society. Follow us on Instagram at Platypus Says and on Twitter at Platypus Says. Finally, if you like the podcast, share it, rate it, and write us a review. Show us some love in 2021. Bye! Deutschland muss dauern, damit wir lesen. Deutschland muss dauern, damit wir lesen. Deutschland muss dauern. Damit wir leben können, Deutschland muss sterben. Damit wir leben können. Vorratschütteln und Panzer, die Frieden sichern. AKWs und Computer, das Leben verbessern. Bewaffnete Roboter, überall. Doch Deutschland, wir bringen dich zum Fall. Deutschland muss sterben, damit wir leben können. 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 Deutschland verrecke, damit wir leben können. Deutschland verrecke, damit wir leben können. Deutschland verrecke. 
Damit wir leben können Deutschland verrecken Damit wir leben können Deutschland And I mean, in terms of the post-truth stuff, when you said that, it made me think, oh, the left also thinks like this, though, right? That we live in a kind of post-truth, like post-modern, and we can just kind of take from whatever existing traditions and mix them up and create our own truth from from whatever, right? Like we don't have to pay attention to the changes and continuity, the problems, the historical problems that we actually inherit like the truth of the historical problems that we inherit. We can just sort of cobble things together, um, you know, as a, as a general trend on the left. Like history doesn't matter anymore because we live in a post-truth age. I, I think it's, it's not just um, Facebook, I guess is what I'm saying, but it comes out in different ways in the mainstream. Yeah.